Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel again. And uh, today we uh, find ourselves in chapter 16. Um, as you're finding your place there, I uh, just want to share this past week was sort of an unconventional week in the life of, of my family. Uh, so my oldest son, Connor, is uh, starting to drive. We're trying to get learner's permits. And uh, if you haven't been to DPS uh, in the past year, uh, can I just tell you today, good luck and I'll pray for you. Um, and uh, we uh, began this process of trying to get an appointment and schedule an appointment. We couldn't get in. Uh, we were kind of running up on his birthday, so we were running out of time. And you can schedule it online or you can show up. So we tried unsuccessfully to show up early a couple of days. And uh, unless you got there at 4 a.m., like you, you didn't get seen. And so my wife had gone to like three or four of these. We were kind of just at the end. And uh, I said, well, go back to the website. Let's look up uh, where there might be some other appointments outside of, of DFW. So she goes home Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day this was. And, and then she ends up calling me. She said, look, there's an appointment open Friday in Galveston. Um, and I uh, said, okay, um, let's pack the kids up. We're going to Galveston this week. And so Thursday, uh, we took off, and uh, the appointment was Friday at about 1.30. Uh, so we got down there late, got, landed in Texas City, never been there before. We were in Texas City. Uh, and then we thought, well, the kids are with us, so let's go to the beach. Now, I don't know if you've been to the Texas beaches uh, lately. I haven't been in probably eight or nine years. Since then, I've been to the beaches in California, which are pristine. Been to Florida, where you can see the water. Beaches are clear. Uh, you go to Texas Beach, son, let me tell you something. You better be prepared, okay? Um, and so we're there on the beach and I'm on Lucy duty. So Lucy is my, my youngest. She's like, you know, this tall. And uh, so we're walking around and we're picking up uh, seashells. That's what she wanted to do. And, uh, and I'm explaining to her as a three-year-old, like, like now Lucy, this isn't a real beach. This is a Texas beach. And so we would take a few steps and like, there'd be like shards of glass there on the side. You know, she'd be like, oh, it's sparkly. Let me pick it up. Don't pick up the glass, you know. And then we'd walk a little bit further and there was like a, a dirty sock that was there, uh, an oil can and then and then randomly like somebody's dirty underwear was like like laying on the beach and um, all I could see as dad is like I'm in like safety mode uh, and number one I didn't want to be in Galveston then because I'm going to camp this week I didn't want to make the drive down there and and honestly I get to the beach I just get irritated because of all the trash everywhere right I'm dogging on Texas beaches we have a long way to go write your senator and let's let's get this changed all right but Lucy is in the zone so she's walking and she starts collecting these little shells and and even the shells on the Texas beaches they're they're not pretty shells and most of them are broken but she keeps picking them up and she'll go she grabbed the shell and she would be like this one this one is beautiful. And she would put it in her hand. And then we would take three or four more steps and she'd pick up another one that was like half broken. It looked like it had been gnawed on by a pigeon or a bird or something. And she picks it up and she goes, this one, it's precious. She grabs it. And we spent like the next 30 minutes her picking up broken shells on a dirty Texas beach. And see, the deal was when I got to the beach, I didn't want to be there. In fact, I wanted to be back home packing for camp and getting ready to go to Arkansas. But in that moment, in this very ordinary moment, God was sort of reminding me of, of who he was through my little two to three-year-old daughter. And she would look past all the trash and, and she would pick up these shells and, and they were what she called just her treasures. I want my treasures. 
You know, I think there's a word for us uh, in the midst of that story as we come to 1 Samuel 16, where we find God's man doing a very ordinary and a very menial thing. In fact, he was doing something at the time that we can affirm that he didn't want to do when God began to call him out. And so if you just joined us this week, the story of 1 Samuel is the people of God want a leader. They, don't, they reject the Lord God. So God gives them a leader in Saul. Saul utterly fails as a leader, doing everything wrong that you possibly could do. And so he loses his kingship. And so God says in 14 and 15, listen, I'm going to pick another man that is after my own heart and I'm going to call him to be the king over my people. And so we pick up in chapter 16 with where this story continues to unfold. And if you notice in beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, the text says this, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I'm the one who has rejected him from being king over Israel. That word grieve there that you see there in your Bible, it's a, a noteworthy word because that means in the Hebrew, not just grieve, but it means to mourn. It means to cry and to weep as if someone has died. And that's the, the weight of the word in which the Lord speaks to Samuel that Samuel is mourning over not the death of someone, but rather he's mourning and grieving over the sin of someone else. It bothers and hurts him that much to watch Saul walk in disobedience against the Lord God and to do things that Saul knew he wasn't supposed to do. And so Samuel got to this state and this emotional state where he's grieving and he's mourning and he's weeping over sin. Now, I don't know about you, but many times I don't weep over my own sin, much less weep over the sins of other people. Samuel was a guy who was walking with God and, and he was grieving over the sins of others and he was broken for it and what he saw, the devastation and the ruin that was taking place and about to take place in Saul's life. And so the Lord says, how long are you going to act this way? I've rejected him from being king. Fill your horn with oil and go. And I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. Samuel says in verse 2, how can I go if Saul hears that he's going to kill me? So if we remember from previous weeks, Samuel's home base is in Ramah. And to travel to Bethlehem to get to Jesse, he has to travel through Gibeah, which is uh, Saul's home base. And so think about the, the irony here of the Lord God, where he sends Samuel to anoint another king, but geographically, he passes right through the town in which the existing king was born and raised and where he grew up. And so Samuel has concern over this, and he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. And so the Lord says, I'm going to ask you to do hard things, but I'm going to uh, equip you and give you a way in which you can do this. And so he says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You're going to anoint for, for him, for, excuse me, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he goes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city come out to meet him, and they're trembling and saying, do you come peaceably? Listen, when the prophet visited your town during this time, it was usually to pronounce judgment on your people. And so when the prophet shows up, the elders are noticeably concerned about what is happening. Do you come in peace or rather do you come to like speak judgment over us on behalf of the Lord? And so obviously they were afraid. Do you come peaceably? And he said, and peaceably I have come 
to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And so he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. Now, we did a, a child dedication here just a moment ago, and, and one of the things that we, we said in that moment is we are publicly uh, stating our, our position that these families are stating before you in a public way their willingness and their desire to raise their kids under the authority of God's Word and in the local church. And they're making a public statement about that. And when you come to this place where where Samuel says to consecrate yourselves, this was typically done in front of people so that others could watch and see how in which you prepared to come to meet the Lord. And so you would go through all of these rituals to get to this place with the priest in front of everyone, and then you would therefore then go to the sacrifice. And so we pick up in verse 6, and when they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Boom, that's the sermon. Like everything in 16 is found in this verse. The whole point of the chapter is found in this idea that we look at external things when evaluating leaders oftentimes and friends. And we spend a lot of time even dealing with our own external realities and and how we look and what we drive and and where we uh, live and and who who we're friends with. And we spend a lot of time thinking about external realities when the truth is, is that in this moment, God is reminding us as a people that though those things can have importance, they are not to have all of the weight and the bulk because God cares about the heart. And he cares about what you think. And he cares about what you feel. And he cares about your integrity in the quiet moments when nobody else is around. In the ordinary places, God cares about those things. And for the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think the lesson here for God's people is is one that's of simplicity, but for leaders it's simply this, to do not let physical appearance outrank spiritual depth. Don't let charisma outrank character. You see, there's a lot of men and a lot of women who have a lot of charisma and they can carry a room and, and, and they're the ones that everybody wants to be around and they can carry the day for, for a little while and, and those can be good things if God has gifted them in that way but not to the neglect that what happens uh, on the inside of the heart with the character of the person is what ultimately matters. I've seen lots of men sit and stand in pulpits and lead Sunday school classes and and be in great churches with a lot of charisma and great ability to speak, but with no character when the doors were closed. It seems like recently in this season of church life over the past couple of years, we have seen rather large churches of five and 10 and 20,000 people, men with great charisma, but with little to no character fall. And their churches and their their empires, if you will, they they crumble. We keep reading in verse 8. He says this, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, one of the other brothers. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel says to Jesse, Are, are all your sons here? Like, is this it? Like, God told me to come here, like, and, and for you to present all of your sons, like, is this everybody? And then notice what Jesse says. You can imagine Samuel's face when he responds. He says, well, yeah, there remains yet the, the youngest, but behold, he is out keeping the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse, we'll send him and get him, and we're not going to sit down until he gets back in here. So we're going to stand and we're going to wait no matter how far he is. And so he sends him out and he brings him in. And then he says, this man was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Now, I don't mean to brag or anything, but I've been called ruddy several times by my wife. <laughs> and by other grown people. He's kind of ruddy. Now, I used to think that was a compliment. Until I sort of dug in this past week, and, and ruddy can mean a variety of things depending on the context. And so when he describes David as being ruddy, it could just be as simple as that, that he was a, a ginger redhead with freckles. I got a little bit of ginger in my beard, and I used to have a lot of freckles on my face. Others say that it, that it could mean this, that, that he was ruddy, that he was, he was dirty, and he was disheveled from coming out in the field. He, he had this farmer's tan, if you will, this, this skin that could have been all leather looking because he had, he had been sunburned so often being out in the field, but he, but he smelled of, of outside and, and pasture and manure. He smelled like an eighth grader the fifth day of youth camp that refuses to take a shower and cover his body odor with Axe body spray. It's what he smelled like. By the way, part of me going to camp is to ensure that your kids bathe at least once, at least. It may be in a river, it may be in a stream, but we'll get them wet somewhere and somehow along the way. But whatever Ruddy actually means here, he, he says, listen, he, he did have beautiful eyes, so he had that going for me, right, Haley? I got beautiful eyes, and, and at least Haley and my mom think that I'm handsome. But the idea was, is that he's setting up a contrast to what we read about Saul, right? Saul was, would have won like the, the, count, the, the year uh, man of the month, if you will, if they were running in that. If they had a beauty pageant for men back in the day, Saul would have been that guy. He was handsome and he was tall and, and he was everything physically that Israel was looking in a leader. And the point here is that David, or the Lord rather, is making a contrast to Saul. And he's saying this freckled, redheaded, ginger guy, if he was, who had some nice eyes and was handsome, but he's smaller in stature and he was doing something that nobody else wanted to do. He was out in the field. Now, if you were out in the field watching sheep, it was not a, a sign that you were doing well in this world. In fact, that the lowest person really, and in, in, in culturally speaking, was the one that would just go out there and, and watch sheep. Nobody wanted to watch sheep for a variety of reasons because you're always outside. But like, imagine how insulting it is when you realize how dumb sheep actually are. And so they put a dumber person around them to watch the dumb sheep in, in these contexts. And so here you are tending these sheep because nobody else wanted to do it. And day in and day out, David goes and he tends the sheep. And he does the same thing over and over again. He deals with the monotony of it and, and, and the obscurity 
of it. And the Lord says, arise, into verse 12, and anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord then rushes upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up, and he goes back home to Ramah. This morning, I want to say something to you that is not a uh, tried and true church growth strategy. In fact, it's the opposite of what many of you grew up hearing your, your whole life. It's not the way to grow a church or to get it bigger, but I think it's biblical and I think it's right. David was an ordinary man that did ordinary things. And ultimately, God built him up and he did some extraordinary things, but not because David was extraordinary, because God was. But David began to grow in his contentedness towards just doing ordinary, menial things. And he didn't try to elevate himself and he didn't try to uh, build his platform. He didn't try to grow his influencers. He didn't try to become famous on YouTube. He just simply went about doing the day to day, the things that God had called him to do, just doing ordinary things, the monotony of it all. No platform building, uh, no pulpit, no social media presence. He goes and he watches sheep. And I think we need, just as David was ordinary, we need more people, here's the countercultural message, that are willing to just do ordinary things as well. You see, the shift comes and we begin to embrace this when we begin to realize that the ordinary things God calls us to do have been extraordinarily, uh, divinely put in our path by a God who loves us and has created us for those things. That it's good for us. It doesn't mean you can't aspire to do something great with your life. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying to you, and you adults will recognize this, this is not a message that youth communicators speak to youth. I grew up my whole life hearing, like, go be a world changer and set the world on fire. And I think looking back over that time, what I needed to hear and what I should hear was, hey, listen, God, you let God place you where God wants to place you. And then you focus on being as faithful as you can to him and his scriptures with whatever it is that he calls you to do. Because some of you dads and you moms, you're, you're in the midst of nine to five jobs that you hate and despise, you loathe them. But listen, God has you there as a means to provide for your families, to give. You moms that, that are home and you're changing diapers or you're constantly cleaning or picking it up or you husbands, whatever it is, and you get lost sort of in the monotony of that and you feel like you're living in a place of obscurity. No one knows you. You have no platform social media wise. You're just simply known by your circle. Can I just say to you this morning and hear the words of the Lord that God has you precisely right where he wants you in this moment. And the reason why I know that is because it is in those ordinary moments that God is shaping and he is cultivating your character before him. That he's preparing you for for something later on that that, that may come into play here in this moment. The previous church I served in, the first two or three years I've shared this, were incredibly difficult for, for me and Haley. And I had one of my elders, his name was Larry Murphy, and he used to say to me, uh, Drew, I don't know what the Lord is, is doing, but he is obviously, by you going through this, he is preparing you for something bigger and, and greater. 
And he used to tell me that all the time. All the while, I didn't believe it. Anytime he said it, I thought, no, my reality is I'm just, I'm stuck here in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. Some that were my fault and, and others that were not. And God is trying to do something in my life and he's teaching me perseverance and, and endurance and, and he is cultivating grit and determination and a stubbornness that exists there in the midst of, of harsh, overly harsh criticism. God was doing something in the midst of that. When I felt like there was no relief ever coming, there, there, was, there was nothing that was gonna change, that my circumstances were never gonna change. I was lost in the obscurity of it. I got lost in the monotony of, of things. You ever feel that way? Like you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and you wanna change? Some of you, your personalities gravitate towards that. You love like the rhythm and that's me. I love the rhythm and the monotony. My wife, she hates the, the rhythm and the monotony. Like she wants change and spontaneity, right? And some of you just personality-wise, you, you may come in and out of, of struggling with this and, and it's not right or wrong. It's just how God has made you and he's created you. But, but here David was, obscurely watching the sheep, the lowest form of a job, uh, wrapped up in the monotony of watching the, the sheep. But, but all the while he's doing this, listen to this, because this will come into play next week. What is he doing as he's just watching the sheep and doing the menial things? Well, he's learning how to use a slingshot. He's learning how to fight bears that are attacking the sheep. He's learning how to, to cultivate courage and overcome fear as, as they are encamped and the Philistines and the Canaanites surround him. And here he is, the youngest brother of all the brothers, and he's the one on the outskirts watching the sheep as all of the enemies of God are surrounding him. And there he is with his slingshot, practicing his craft. Oh, there's a bear. I'm going to teach you how to fight a bear. There's a lion. I'm going to teach you how to fight a lion. Uh, here's this army that's surrounding you as well. I'm going to teach you how to have courage in the midst of very difficult circumstances all the while you're living in obscurity and you're walking in a monotonous way enduring suffering and the reality is that God is shaping you right in the middle of the pasture and you don't know it because David didn't know these things were going to happen but, but it was in the obscurity that God was doing something in David's life and, and listen we need more people that are okay with living in the pastures and learning what, it, what it's like to wait upon the Lord and to let him elevate or, or to increase you or to decrease you, but learning to trust and, and learning to walk with him. So David was learning these things in the ordinary and in the monotony. Listen to me, friend. When God calls you into the ordinary things, remember that those ordinary things are extraordinary in his eyes. But it's okay to be caught up in the midst of some of this stuff. But it's okay to be working in the pasture and no one seeing and knowing and maybe you're doing the lowest form of, of service that you could possibly do because no one else will, will do it or you were assigned that job at your, at your work or that task or, or at school. Friend, listen, it's, it's okay because God sees you and God knows how you feel and, and how you think. And, and God has a way of, of making what I believe are just extraordinary things in the very ordinary places of life. And too often we are prone to, to dismiss the ordinary. 
I think one of the chief lessons in, in David's life in this moment, in this text, is simply this idea that, that God delights in elevating servants from very low places. He brings them up and he lifts them up. And he elevates them to, to places so that he can receive the credit. David wasn't doing anything. You want a picture of grace. This is a picture of grace. He was out there tending sheep. He was the youngest and, and, and was going to have to work the hardest of them all. He, he, he wasn't even uh, militarily speaking. He didn't have the stature or the charisma at this point. Like he had everything against him in this moment and did nothing to earn or deserve what he got. And God just said, Whoop, he's my guy. And before some of you go, well, I'm just going to be faithful in the obscure and maybe one day God will make me king of Israel like David. Don't go there. It's possible God may leave you in that obscurity for a long time. And then a season of, of monotony or, or repetitiveness. But all the while, what God is doing is he's sort of chinking away at, at your armor, at your pride, at your will, like he did and does to me and still doing to me. And he's, he's gradually changing and he's, and he's shifting. God delights in elevating servants from lowly places because God tells us in his word that he will not share his glory with servants who think too highly of themselves. Who will defame my glory? Who will, will take my glory? No one, says the prophet Isaiah, as the Lord speaks to him. I will give my glory to no one. I will be challenged. I have no rivals. There is no name that is above my name. Like it is about me and it always will be about me. And the gospel invitation is this. You get to come be a part of, of God's story. Like you're a part of what he's doing, his redemptive work, not Travis's redemptive work, not my redemptive work, but God's redemptive work. You get to be a part of what he's doing in our city because it's ultimately his story. David was learning in the midst of the pasture what it meant to be a faithful leader, excuse me, a faithful follower before he was a faithful leader. And we've got to learn to follow and, and to adhere to those things. You know, I kept thinking this weekend coming into today about Lucy and my experience with that on the beach and her picking up broken seashells, sea say that six times fast, um, in the midst of glass, in the midst of trash and dirty socks and garments and, and her just saying, these are my treasures. You know, so much of, of her character in that moment, although she does not know the Lord, doesn't understand this, but what you see and discern through that process is like, isn't that what God does in the midst of, of our lives? He sees the broken seashells. He sees the, the garbage and the, the dirty undergarments and he sees the glass and the, and the busted rusty oil cans laying there in the midst of, of his creation and, and all the while what he's doing, he's doing what Lucy's doing. He's picking up those shells and he's, and he's taking them and he's saying, these are my treasures. These are precious. I value these things. Friend, I don't know where you are this morning in your walk, but can I say that we are all, you are a broken seashell. And our God is looking past and he dealt with our sin on the cross. And he dealt with our shame and with our condemnation and with our brokenness and the bondage of sin that, that entangles us. And he looks past that because of Christ and what he did on the cross. And he picks up those shells and he says, these are my treasure. These I value. 
Can I tell you this morning that because of Christ and what he did, he values you. And he cares about where you're at and what you're going through. He cares about your feelings and he cares about your thoughts. And he wants you to know him. And he wants you to walk with him. Because just as we begin to understand how much God values us, when we understand that, it should lead us to a place where we begin to value God even more. When we understand what he thinks about us and our identity being wrapped up, that we are his treasure and that he has chosen us and he has called us and he has prepared good works in advance for us and then we go and we walk by faith and we serve him and we don't look back. This morning I'm asking you to not look back and to receive his goodness in your life and to know that he values you and he loves you and he cares for you and he knows right where you're at, whether it's good or whether it's bad or whether you're apathetic and don't care or whether you care a whole lot like he knows. And here's the deal, the same love that I know that he has for me is the same love and passion that I know that he has for you this morning, that he cares about you.